Hey everyone, welcome to some extra content we have for you from the Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers, and today we're joined by a indie dev in our Indie Dev Lounge. That's right. Is, so we have Luther Patenji? Patenji. Patenji, correct. Luther Patenji with us today. Uh, and Luther comes representing joy manufacturing co and they are working on a new game called ambition a minuet and power which is really exciting so thank you luther for uh coming and uh joining us for our indie dev lounge yeah yeah thank you it's good to be here they uh, haven't seen you guys since pax east yeah i know yeah, right, i know yeah, we yeah, were yeah. it's it's been so like it's been like 10 years i guess <laughs> that's what it feels like time is meaningless <laughs> it, it really is Everything blurs together. It has been 10 years. It has been two days. It has been a month. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, we we met Luther at PAX. Uh, I think he just kind of came up to us and you're like, hey, come check out my game. So we uh, uh, we checked it out. We liked it. We exchanged some information and um, we've been in touch here and there. But uh, yeah, the game is Ambition, a Minuet in Power. Before we get into chatting with Luther at length, uh, we want to just remind the audience that uh, an Indie Dev Lounge segment is uh, a, a sub-series of ours that's extra content that we produce in order to highlight uh, an indie dev and what it's like being an indie developer, uh, what the indie development scene is like, and uh, games that you may or may not have heard about that deserves some love because in th there's there's something to be said about a person who develops games solely for the passion of developing a game versus someone who works for a large company and putting out games because that's what makes money because the, the game industry is a multi-billion dollar game industry so there's a lot of money to be had but for somebody to take a passion project and developing the game fully is something to be respected, to be honest. And is it's a honor and a privilege to have these conversations with our indie dev friends, as it were, our partners in crime. Except Zach and I, we don't develop games. We just talk no. about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an honor to be here regardless. Yeah. We really appreciate it. The floor is yours, Luther. Why don't why don't you give us a, a story? Uh, regarding um, ambition, a minuet, and power, and why someone who's listening to this episode should check your game out. All right. So to give the quick elevator pitch, Ambition, a Minuet, and Power is a visual novel set in 18th century Paris where you play as an unmarried woman of fashion seeking to claw her way to the top of society. Get love, get wealth, get power by any means necessary. Just don't get beheaded or assassinated or driven to bankruptcy. It was a really, really wild time to be alive, to be honest, and like, you know, both really beautiful, but not always very fun. <laughs> and so like, as for why a person would want to play our game, I guess it's like, are you interested in games that are very story heavy? Are you interested in games that are have a major league historical basis and are focused on being well-researched and accurate? Are you interested in stuff that like captures the feeling of history as in like, what would it be like to have actually been a person in these positions? And also, do you like cool romance stories? Do you like, like a diverse cast? Do you like queer romance options? We've got all that. So, you know, 
and we've got a fantastic art style going on. Uh, I can best describe it as if the Avatar The Last Airbender crew was asked to make a Disney movie. Ooh, That's yeah. sort of the style we set on, and our music is both period accurate and utterly spectacular, an original score created by John Robert Matz, and uh, yeah. It's really really cool. That's, that is that is exciting. Yes. So uh, Zach and I uh, each independently have played portions of this game. We actually didn't get a chance to play it at PAX. There's a lot to do at PAX, and <laughs> we were very overwhelmed. So I did play a little bit of it during the Steam Summer event, and Zach played. He's played a lot more of it with some preview that Luther gave us in ahead of this episode. It's definitely got like it's like a unique setting. It's got some unique characters and. It's got like game mechanics that I wouldn't necessarily think about in regards to like a, a normal game that I would necessarily play. Like if I'm playing like a, a traditional like adventure game, you know, you're like thinking about your inventory and stuff like that, which you guys have an inventory, but you have like these like stats of like credibility and stamina that you have to like balance. And I never really thought about credibility as a stat personally. I, just, I was like, <laughs> that's actually really like a, a fun addition to the game like just having like yeah like it makes sense for that time period but i think it's just fun for the game itself it's something that you have to kind of balance in one of the things i did is you know to prepare for this game i spent a lot of time either reading historical books and watching period pieces set in the era and stuff like that and one of the most common things that happens of like in period pieces in 18th century paris is just everyone is lying oh, all yeah. the time and i just like really latched onto that point of like well i mean if that's true i mean we've got to represent it somehow and like you know some people become really really adept liars so yeah. like cultivating that false credibility feels like a uh, you know feels like something we should put into the mechanics and i think that's a it's an excellent choice i i definitely 100 agree that that is a mechanic that needs to be uh represented especially for this time period which this is it's a, a unique i would say a time period i wouldn't necessarily think about this time period being represented in like a video game medium how did it come to be like how did this time period and this like where did it spawn from is like what i'm curious about so the original impetus behind all of this was i was I was drunk with my roommate at the time, and we were watching the, uh, I believe it's the 1940s version of The Three Musketeers. It has Angela Lansbury in it, Basil Rathbone. It's super campy, but just like super fun. And I really recommend it to anyone. And so we were watching it, and we were thinking like, man, like, you know, the most interesting character in this whole thing is, is actually the villainous Milady de Winter. <laughs> Because, like, you know, the king can just order things to get done, and the uh, the musketeers, if they don't like something, they can just put three feet of steel through it. But, like, you know, Milady de Winter is always lying, always scheming, always conniving to get what she wants. So she gets a ton done in the story with very little resources or power compared to everyone else. And we settled on this idea that she was kind of an exemplar, not of hard power like the king or the musketeers, but of soft power. And we started thinking like, okay, but like, has there ever been a game like that? Like, what would that game even look like? And we started tooling around with this idea. And finally, once we had that, like Three Musketeers is, I think, uh, 1600s. 
and eventually settled on the notion of like, well, what would be the best time to host something like this? And the idea of hosting it in the French Revolution like really came into focus because it was still a time when like social power was super important. Like, you know, it wasn't like a full out war, but it was also a time where the stakes could not be higher. Like this is like you are about to battle for the soul of a country and like the and the consequences for anyone's failure were very fatal so like the i so that kind of came together of like what's the coolest thing now what's the highest stakes version of that thing and that's how we settled in on this all good ideas start with a drunk story (laughs) they really do more often than not as it seems i've been enjoying the game from what i've played i i love a lot like the characters and particular i i just encountered antoine not too far t- too long ago and he ah, yeah. he's one of my favorite characters so far to encounter he is a real guy by the way I, i'm Louis not surprised antoine is not just is one of those ca- figures from history where if i made him up people would call bullshit yeah they would be like there's <laughs> no way that. i'm like nah nah he actually gets more outrageous as ta- as history goes on <laughs> like look up some of the quotes from the man on google images you'll uh you'll get some real zingers <laughs> nice. yeah well, that's just one of the things i love is all these characters some of them being inspired by real people but they just feel so alive in this game as well i mean they feel like real people in terms of their their histories in terms of their character traits in terms of just the way they talk in terms of like little things like if you say something to them it might set them off in the wrong way but if you say something else you know they'll like it sort of deal that's one thing i really love so far in terms of the game and also like seth was saying the the whole thing with credibility but also exhaustion levels something that i i didn't even realize was messing me up at one point was my i just didn't rest after going to like five parties and my my, event was just exhausted she just needed a day off yeah your credibility just starts tanking as you become this barely functional human being um the that that was somewhat inspired by the gdc and like going out and just like you know if you're out every single night you just start to become a zombie and you cannot function in any conversation so i was like okay well you know i feel like that's something everyone has to do i'm sure you guys felt this at pax where you're like you know you reach a moment like if i talk to another human being i don't know what's going to happen i really don't those little details i love because like seth was saying it is it is unique for for game i mean i've played um some visual novels i played like steins gate which um you know mm. it's an entirely different sort of visual novel game but the other games that i've played they don't take into those type of things always into consideration they might have like exhaustion levels but it doesn't seem to play out the same way so that's just something i think is really awesome about the game one thing we were really focused on is the idea that um you know like a game a game is really in many cases just a system of a series of rules and like logical choices that get made either by a system or by a player the player has to have meaningful outcome on those decisions for the game to be interesting but like society and all social stuff has rules and even if we can't articulate them out loud we all kind of know them that's why that's why someone can say something really dumb and even if you haven't seen the negative reaction yet everyone in the room you can feel that tension of everyone going yeah. Oh, that's yeah, not so. good. Yeah, and yeah. so, like, you know, so we all kind of know the rules more or less. So we wanted to, like, put in some of those rules into the game so that, like, you don't necessarily have to teach them all to the player. You can just instinctively look at it and go, 
Oh, that is not the right thing to say right yeah, now. Yes, not yeah. after <laughs> not after they just brought up blank. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lean in on this right now. So we thought that would be just kind of a fun thing to do. Hmm. And, you know, helps make the player feel like Yvette, who is this like kind of expert manipulator type character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Though I feel like you develop being an expert manipulator over time. I feel like in mm-hmm. the beginning you're a little more naive. Yeah, the basically I would say unprepared. unprepared. Yvette was, you know, was was good in her small provincial town, but now she has come to the big leagues and it's much bigger than she expected. Yeah, which I, I again that just those type of details I think is it's it's a it's definitely something that makes the game unique to play, but in, in such a good way. Thank you. I think that's kind of a universal experience that that was easy to draw on. Like we've all had a moment where we've walked into a party or a social event where you have that like double take moment of like, whoa, I do not belong here. Oh and, yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. and you know, it's it always leaves such an impact that like if I fail if we did that, like it would resonate with people and they go, oh yeah, I remember that time. So we're we're all video gamers or have some interest in video games, as it were. What have you just to get to Luther as a as a person? What what have you been playing recently beyond Ambition? Okay, so beyond playing Ambition, I the, <laughs> which I'm sure you're playing I, a lot of. <laughs> yes, the uh, I don't even know if I'm can if you can say I'm playing it per se. Like yeah. I'm testing yeah. it. So like you know most of my time playing Ambition is me like cracking open the admin tool like screwing in a bunch of commands and being like okay but now if i try the event this way does it break it does not all right cool next and things like that but the so like i actually the game i finished up most recently was hellblade senua's sacrifice oh which yeah, is yeah. really good yeah. it is the game is a master class in terms of design restraint of like you can almost feel the producer leaning over your shoulder the entire game being like okay so like does the ca- does the character ever pick anything up? Literally, never know. Uh, does combat ever expand beyond arena fights? We do not have time for that. And like, you know, just it stays really narrowly focused on what it's good at. And there's something super inspiring about that. Mm, yeah. Like, and in addition to it just being like a really well made, very emotional, horrifying game. Like. <laughs> They, uh, there, there are some scenes of like pure nightmare fuel in that game where I think the only way they got to that scene was they found someone on the team like, hey, you're like deeply phobic of fire. What is the worst case scenario for you, a person who's deeply afraid of fire? The guy listed out like, all right, we're putting in the game. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, ah, <laughs> love the game, but a little intense. Oh yeah, definitely. It's been on my like to playlist for a while, so I'll have to try it. I have a an ever evolving and ever incompleted playlist, as it were. That I think that's pretty true of all of us. I've also been playing Valheim with some friends. Yes, you know, I just picked up yes. Saturday. Yeah, we we do kind of like a, a Saturdays only thing. We have a thing, an agreement going where none of us will look anything up on the internet. We have have to discover everything organically and that kind of creates a fun feeling of everyone like in the same small group running around and like you know we have a discovery of like oh my god i figured out how to make bronze and like everyone's suddenly clustering up and trying to fix fix things up like it's a nice experience i like that yeah so you guys represent uh joy manufacturing co and you're the developer of Ambition Minuet of Power. And this was your first game that was kickstarted. Yes. This is our studio's first game, though though it's not the, game, the first game for us like as individuals in the right. industry. Right, okay. But this is Joy Manufacturing Co.'s first game. Yes, Joy Manufacturing Co.'s flagship title. We uh, funded the game initially on Kickstarter. 
um, back in 2017. Like, yeah, like yeah, 2017. Oh wow! And the and the original members of the company were we were all in the same Dungeons and Dragons group. Oh, and perfect. Our, our D yeah our D and D group. It was a fourth ed villains only game where uh, we were and. Uh, Basically, I had been working on the prototype for Ambition in my free time, and like when I would get home from work at a different company, and then I came to that group, and a bunch of us were in between jobs, and I said, hey, here's a prototype of this game I've been talking about. Back then, it was very loose. It was like blue squares seducing white squares, and <laughs> the, uh, you know, all, I don't know if you've ever seen the average game prototype, but it's as ugly as sin, and the... Uh, endearing in their own way either way i was like hey this is the game here's where i think it could go here's what i think it would take to finish it and there were uh two people in that group which would be our art director alexandria and our uh and our lead engineer mike who's actually in the room next to me who basically said like yeah i don't really like my current job right now that sounds way better let's do that <laughs> and yeah they were they were good enough to join this mad quest and here we are like all that time later we're in beta or you know i can't say when the release date is other than you know soon with the little trademark symbol on it and perfect soon yeah <laughs> that's good dnd is a great creative outlet yeah we had a moment where we realized we've actually spent more time screaming at each other during the course of that DD game than we did like ever making this game so like it's really good for like seeing who you communicate well with. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially in a stressful situation oh yeah, hundred percent. I don't know. Are you um are you a fan of like um Vampire the Masquerade and the White Wolf stuff as well? I've played a little bit of it. Yeah, I was in a very good uh, Mortals game for oh, a fun. while. Where yeah, the uh, I played an accountant named Mr. White who did not believe in the supernatural in any way whatsoever, so and like that was his whole shtick is he always kept trying to rationalize everything that was happening. You could just take that character and go to like a Call of Cthulhu game. We could just go anywhere. <laughs> He was like, nope, nope, nope. Like the first time, like the first time one of our players got attacked by a vampire, I'm like, Jesus, you almost got mugged by those perverts. <laughs> we have to get out of here. <laughs> I feel like role playing games, though, definitely um, can show your your tolerance level with other people as well, like and how close you are as friends with them. I played in a uh, a live action role playing game of Vampire the Masquerade, and I actually oh, yeah. had a friend. He wanted to intimidate me. His character wanted to, to intimidate me with lighting a fire near my face and he ended up pulling a lighter out and lit it and actually caught like the end of my hair on fire <laughs> and it, and this was while we were in like a shouting match with each other and it was just that afterwards we hugged and it was just like a really good like connection moment but i think that role-playing games are really really good at like allowing you to test boundaries with people as it were it's a uh it's it's an exercise in both empathy and vulnerability right. in which you have to you know you if you want to role play well you have to be able to let yourself be a little vulnerable but you also have to be very empathetic and understanding of everyone else in the group and being like whoa so and so is letting down their boundaries right now i need to you know i need to approach this in a uh, we're gonna say a tactful and respectful fashion even while our characters are doing all sorts of wacky things like we i've definitely i think i've definitely been in a role-playing moment where there was two of us like you know screaming at each other and there was a moment where we had to do a little bit of a time out second like 
We're we're actually like cool though, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, we're cool. <laughs> we're like back to it, and like you know, everyone's sort of like, all right. I just want to make sure we're all like we're all chill about this. Well, I guess speaking on uh, role playing and other games and such, you told us a bit about where the idea for ambition came from. But uh, did any other video games or anything else inspire ambition? Uh, other video games that became inspiring. Uh, I really recommend if you want another game like a visual novel set in 18th century France. I'd really recommend Aviary Eternal. Which is okay. like a it's like it's like Ace Attorney. They just had a new uh, version that was released on um, on the Nintendo Switch. It's uh, a really well done detective visual novel that takes place in France after the First Revolution. And it's just like super well done, good mysteries, bird puns for days. Uh, you are a bird lawyer. The um, insert your always sunny jokes yeah. in here. <laughs> like other games, I found inspiring because I did. You know, I've, I've played a lot of visual novels to uh, you're getting a good flow. Valhalla, cyberpunk, bartender actions, really good. Get yeah, uh, I recommend uh, Dream Daddies. Is fantastic. Oh yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is like a genuinely fun, charming, like good romance game. Uh, anyone else who's played that game, Craig for Life. So those are other games I have definitely checked out as like inspiration and for ambition. Otherwise, I'm just like literally have my Steam thing, my Steam thing open right now. Like you get you get all sorts of inspiration from other places. Like I was really inspired actually by of all things the tooltip design in Hades. Oh, okay. The uh, like Hades yeah. does some fantastic tutorializing by just having a super well thought out UI of like you. It is hard to be confused in Hades because they do such a good job of not through explicit tutorializing, but may making a UI that draws your eye and always has the ability to explain more if you want it, but not like getting in your face about it. Yeah. And like, you know, some game some game types are easier to teach than others. Like you're never gonna get into a four X game that requires no tutorials. Right. Like, let's be real. Like they, right. those games need to teach you something. Whereas whereas like Hades, it's like it's actually pretty freaking complex and very high speed. But like, you know, the fact that there are so few tutorials and it still works, it's just a credit to how good Supergiant are at their craft. Yeah, and I think it's especially if you for like specifically ambition, you guys are dealing with a, a historical time period, which people may not necessarily understand because they may not be they may be a fan of video games. They may be fans of visual novels, but they might not be fans of history. <laughs> so then there may be like things that you need to let, let alone explain how the mechanics work you may be also trying to explain like this is how things were back then it's a uh, been an interesting challenge writing the game is the sort of conveying like trying to convey without beating people over the head with it is like what were the social mores of this period what did people care about what did they value you know there's a lot of the, you'll find a lot of things like uh, the 18th century especially the late 18th century was way more modern than you think like like in lots of things but it, france was in this weird place where like like everything was modernizing super duper fast, except at the top, which mm -hmm. was still stuck in this like feudalist monarchy thing that was like not able to keep up or well manage everything else that was happening. And push was coming to shove, like something's going to break eventually. So like, you know, you had like, you had like advanced systems of credit you had global spanning corporations you have like all of these things that were happening and changing but it was still all going up to 
a king whose bloodline was considered pure and blessed by God, and that's why he was in charge. And, like, that's not gonna work, guys. Like, you, you're gonna, like, that can't last. Something's going to break. Yeah, at some point the tide is gonna break the wall. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, especially when people could look directly across the pond and they yep. could go to England, who had had, like, the Magna Carta since, you know, for <laughs> hundreds of years at this point. Like, France was, France's monarchy was considered backwards even by the other monarchies of Europe at this point, where, like, the idea that nobility did not pay taxes at all was outrageous to everyone else on the continent but like france still stuck with it because i don't know they did and and late in late 18th century america came around (laughs) (laughs) yeah and france had like and france had really shot themselves in the foot because you know 1770s they send off like you know all of these young officers and soldiers to fight in the american revolution and they come Sorry. back and they're like guys you would not believe what we just saw it was great <laughs> and so like a lot of the early revolutionaries were actually young aristocrats who had just come back and been like actually you know that democracy idea sounded pretty cool oh, yeah. <laughs> and like you know not good for everyone who had just set them over and nearly bankrupted france in the process <laughs> It, it, I mean, we should be real. The Americans, like George Washington and the Founding Fathers, were also young aristocrats that were trying <laughs> Oh, yeah, to, totally. Yeah, yeah. They were just tired of having a big king. They wanted to be their own little kings. <laughs> yeah, and and you can see, like, there, there are certain American Founding Fathers who just kind of wanted to be a new aristocracy, in my opinion, mostly Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> and then you had... Then, of course, you had, like, the real radicals, like Tom Paine, who, he's my favorite founding father, who is, like, great dude, founded America's first abolitionist society, like, wanted America's religion to be deism, like, they had all these really... advocated for universal basic income oh yeah like yeah. did all these really cool things he also was so hated by the time he died that like six people attended his funeral that's it like such a such an amazingly well-written dude who could not stop pissing people off <laughs> I, I i just like that you have a favorite founding father that's not one of the core <laughs> the core people I, I think it's fun when people really appreciate history enough that they are able to have Thomas Paine as their favorite <laughs> founding <Thank you>. father. <laughs> so I actually, um, Zach kind of pushed ahead, but I, I wanted to dwell a little bit more on uh, Kickstarter. So I actually internet archived your guys' Kickstarter and went back to the uh, original snapshot of you guys when you were launching it in 2017, and which is how, which is how I knew it was 27. Like I just I like. I dug around, <laughs> but uh, what was it like uh, having a successful Kickstarter go through and get the funding that you guys did? Like, wh- was it? Uh, I didn't like. Was it down to the wire? Was it? Was it easily? It was surpassed? extremely down to the wire. And uh, for those who are not aware, Kickstarter's funding method is all or nothing. Mm, right. If you do not meet your goal, you do not get anything. And when you're making a Kickstarter campaign, it's like making its own product. Because, like, that's in many ways what a Kickstarter campaign is. It is a kind of entertainment product that's not necessarily the thing that you're making. And I will say that Kickstarter campaign, like, during that 30 days might have been the hardest I've ever worked in my entire (laughs) life. Like, I worked all day, every day, except for two days. One of them was Thanksgiving, and the other one was the day that my girlfriend 
at the time physically dragged me out of the apartment and forced me to play away from my phone to sit down on the beach and play Jenga with one of her friends in the sand. Because like other than that, all I was doing was working, shaking, and then occasionally drinking whiskey. That's like all I did. It was probably not a healthy place for me to be at. I will not, the, uh, if, if, if anyone's looking into, into running a Kickstarter campaign, like, do it, pursue your craft, do your thing, but, like, know that you're getting into something that's real tough. Oh, yeah. Like, it is, it's not easy. Was I, I briefly did a Kickstarter campaign back when I was in college uh, for a senior mm. project that we uh, did. I was, I did filmmaking in college, so... Um, oh, cool. as part of our senior project, we had to fund it out of pocket. Me and my team did a Kickstarter and it was successful. We didn't ask for too, too much money, but still, even like, even then it was still like down to the wire and every moment was just like stress. <laughs> yeah. Like you, when you get those days in the middle of the campaign where no money is coming in at all and you just kind of stare and feel like an icy hand clutching your heart is <laughs> like, ah, it's those moments where you're like, oh. I really did pick this, didn't I? <laughs> like this. I did this to myself, yeah. and I have no one to blame yeah, yeah. but myself. <laughs> so had it's to, rough. a relief moment, though. Like it's it probably felt really good having the Kickstarter clear. Yeah, it is. Like when it, when it clears, it is. Yeah, it is a huge moment, and um, it's always good to remember the fact the only reason it cleared is because you have uh, great people around you, great people on your team, great friends and family supporting you, and like just we've. I feel very good about the fan base that we've cultivated. Mm. The you know I believe that we have some of the nicest fans and games, and I will fight to defend this. The but yeah, it's like like it's been uh it's been really good and really rewarding. It's uh, one of those things. I'm sure you folks have encountered this on your own, like working on this. Of like, if I had known how hard this was going to be going in, I might not have even started. <laughs> but like, I'm glad that we've done it anyway. So you said that you had very positive fans and very the you said the nicest fans in in for any game do you feel like they're satiated do you feel like they're overall happy with how you guys are coming along and your pacing I think people are, are overall happy with how we're coming along and the nice thing is is our fans don't seem to be particularly impatient you know they want something that's good when it releases like it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be out tomorrow it just needs to launch well yeah right and i think that we're a team that's really focused on doing something like that uh, we, you know, we want you only get a one chance to make a first impression, and we want you know this is not just a first impression of ambition; it's a first impression of our studio. Yeah. So we yeah. want to make sure that it launches in a way that, like, you know, I'm not going, I'm not suffering under any delusions. I don't think we're going to launch like Super Giants and be like Bastion, where people are like right out the gate, be like, "Holy shit, what do these people make?" Whereas, like, by the way, I love Super Giant stuff. I like, I've played all their games, but the um, Pyre was great, by the way. But the um, you know, at the same time, I want people able to play our game and say, wow, for a company's first title, this is really good. Like, that's what I'm aiming for. I think that's a good, like, realistic goal to have. Personally, as a fan of a lot of companies that have at times delayed games or had had issues and stuff like that, I mean, my, my saying has always been I never feel disappointed as a fan because if 
it needs to be delayed. It needs to be delayed. I mean, I would rather a game get delayed 99% of the time than released too early. Absolutely. You know, I would rather, Absolutely. it's art to me. I mean, video games are art and I would rather art be finished. You know, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the thing. Like I would rather art be finished than. I 100% agree with that. I've been going back and forth with myself with the, uh, so Baldur's Gate 3 by Larian mm. is in early access and released uh, in early access at like full retail and I was like I like Larian I support them I think that they do good stuff I think that they'll honestly I think my hearts of hearts I think that they're going to bring home a completed like a good product at the end of it I kind of wish that they didn't put it into early access though or did it at a later stage of development because like I'll like try it it's also a pretty large game so it's 60 gigs I have to keep it installed I go in I play for like an hour or two and I'm like uh <laughs> then I like I'm about to back... say I think you might want to rip the band-aid off and just uninstall it and wait for it to come out <laughs> like I know <laughs> it's true. tempting it's I like true. having that pack of cigarettes sitting on your nightstand but like you you know otherwise you know if like some people really, really enjoy the early access thing. Some people like like seeing a game and like that is in like that very I'm gonna say like that liminal state of it's like yeah. it's almost not a game. It's so messed up. Yeah. But like the um like some people really do that very well. But if that's not your speed, don't let you ruin the game I for don't. yourself. It's, it's yeah. true. It's true. It's good. There's advice. a million other super cool things out there. You it's know, good. it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's very true. Now you're with uh, Joy Manufacturing Co., which is a new mm-hmm. studio. Uh, mm-hmm. So what is your particular role with Joy Manufacturing Co.? So roles I have taken up in this company. One of the things I will tell people is that when you're when you're in indie games, especially starting up, you wear a ton of hats. Like because like what who are we going to put who are we going to push this off to? Who do we have money right. to pay? Mm. The answer is no one. And so the uh, so it only comes back down to me. So I am our game designer. I am our writer. I am our community manager. I am our liaison for our publisher, which all and I'm also our CEO. So I handle all the admin angle for that, which means I do all of the HR stuff, communicating with our accountants, communicating with our lawyers. And um, I, you know, y'all saw me at PAX. I have also been our studio's booth babe. Uh, you just do any job that needs to get done. And like, hopefully you have, you know, if you're going to start a studio, you need to, you need to have the presence of mind to understand what you cannot do for a company. And like, you do not want me elbow deep in the code of this game. I can't, like I've made the prototype, the original, like I can code things. Is they're also massive Turing tar pits that I, you know, I would not release into anything so I can do it. I wouldn't, like I, I went to art school. I'm a decent artist. Am I a release game quality artist? Absolutely not. No, don't put, I'm also our producer. So like, you know, managing milestones and things like that. So, and, um, you know, keeping our Trello board going, but you know, that's my, that's pretty much my list of responsibilities right now. The conductor of the Uh, train. Yeah, I I am definitely keeping this crazy train barely on the rails, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, I had a friend who described game development as I do. I don't know if anyone remembers the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but there's this sequence where they're having a sword fight in like a water wheel that's going down a hill. 
And like game production is, imagine there's only three quarters of that wheel, and you are constantly prying up the back end of the wheel, and then using it to reassemble the front of the wheel so you don't crash. And you're just constantly, like, desperately keeping this thing going. While you're sorting. That is, like, <laughs> while, you, while someone is trying to stab you. I don't know what the person trying to stab you represents, but otherwise, this that is the feeling of game development. I'd say, like, you know, when you've been in the industry for long enough, if there's a moment of, like, like, I don't even know how games get it all get made at all. It's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> what got you into the wheel? What what got you into this? So the the game that made me want to make games was actually um I believe Mech Warrior Two. Oh, okay. Which is, dates back to like yeah, it's like the nineties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the original Mech Warrior Two um was a moment where like i was a kid i was playing it and i just like i didn't know how games were made i didn't know what they really were at their mechanical core but i did play this thing and for some reason i was just like but like i want to make this too and so like i mean in high school and in college actually i was a terrible student in both cases (laughs) but like you know in in high school i was like up late at night teaching myself how to use game editing tools i was teaching myself how to use maya and that's how i got into art school is i showed up with a digital self-taught digital portfolio i um in art school i was originally studying to be an animator but i eventually settled on game design as my artistic medium of expression back in 2008 2009 ish that was not necessarily considered art. I had some uh, had some strong disagreements with my teachers over whether or not that was possible. But I graduated anyway, and then of course I gra- I graduated directly into the two thousand nine crash. So everything fell apart. Um, I apparently had a pending job offer at EA that was rescinded because they were crashing. Everything went up, everything went to pieces. And so it took me a while to get into the industry, around four years of, um, like, I moved to Boston because there was a a founding or nascent industry there uh, to try and find work while I was doing data entry for a biopharma company, like, just the most menial work you could imagine of, like, take this Excel Excel spreadsheet, make it into a different kind of Excel spreadsheet, (laughs) do this for, like, nine hours a day while teaching yourself macros to make it faster and all the while was just like constantly working on side projects in my spare time eventually i ended up pulling up sticks and moving to san francisco and i found my way in started off really my career really started at a company called kabam which is a mobile and social games company i worked on godfather five families dragons of atlantis as their community manager eventually bargained my way into being a junior designer and that's more or less how it all started. Just like, yeah, originally be, being that guy in the forums telling people uh, telling people to stop posting so many angry things <laughs> to trying to convey trying to convey the, the, their feelings to the team and the team's progress to the people and being semi-successful. It's so funny though, like the being a community manager, like so if you think about the different roles now with like different video game companies, the community managers is something that is needed, right? And there's cuz there's usually forums that are attached to multiple games. The mostly like well-known are probably going to be your MMO community managers because it's like the yeah. huge community that stays around forever and ever and ever and ever. But I bet 
100% that your time as a community manager helped with Kickstarter and all of the different comments and all the stuff that fed through. Like I had a I had a Reddit AMA and it was weird where I was doing it and like people were pinging me who remembered me from my Kabam days. Nice. And they were like, holy crap, you're Iron Whale? And I was like, hey, what up? And it was like this whole thing of like going back and forth. And it was, yeah, it was really surreal. I'm like, I didn't think anyone would remember me when the world gets just a little smaller it's really what happens yeah absolutely the the, the strangest version of this is i once was uh i once was waiting in line for a uh like to get into a nightclub and the bouncer was playing dragons of atlantis on his phone (laughs) and i was just kind of like creeping over his shoulder i'm like what server you on you could just get him some stuff right (laughs) yeah i i I did not but i really should have i really should have just cracked open that admin tool which i always had on my phone just in case something went hideously wrong (laughs) like hey you know well tip for tat you get me in and i'll get you some uh, (laughs) currency what what is power if not something to abuse and so then you're primarily self-taught well, you went to art school, but mm-hmm. like, and when it came to game design, since you were, you mentioned that like the art school necessarily wasn't hundred percent supportive of you being a game designer. Not a hundred percent. Like I had, um, I had one really, really great teacher, uh, Heather Kelly, who actually thinks still teaches at CMU's GDC. She, which is the grad level program, which is like full on people that can, you know, this is a grad school devoted towards the making of games. And like Heather was probably my most supportive teacher in that regard. She's fantastic. Uh, she worked a lot on like stealth games, so like the the Splinter Cell series and the Thief oh, okay. series, yeah. stuff like that. Oh, right. And um, like that's where I learned things from there. And like you know. I was doing what a lot of other hobbyist folks were doing, like going to game jams where you make a game in 48 hours. Don't know how good it's going to be, but you make one. And like, you know, finding game design textbooks like classic Zimmerman stuff like The Art of Play and, you know, just watching tons of YouTube videos. Or I, I don't, I'm sure you folks have done stuff like this where you're like you just play a game and you sit down with it afterwards and like maybe sometimes with a piece of paper I'll do this and be like, okay, well, what did it make me feel? Ooh. Why did it make me feel that? How'd they do that? Like, like, you know, in, in Senua's Sacrifice, I felt, it's like, it's really weird. I don't feel like I'm playing as Senua. I feel like I'm playing as, like, almost like a voyeur. And the way they do that is little techniques, like, um, Senua will intentionally never look at the camera while you're playing the game. She will always look away at the last minute, which gives a feeling that she's avoiding your gaze. Or, like, she will occasionally during the certain the in-game cutscenes will look directly at the camera and when she talks there it's almost a very confrontational feeling and like uh, her eyes are a little too wide her mouth is a little too agape that gives that feeling of like this person's not okay something is deeply unsettled within them and so like and you combine that with uh for those who don't know senua in the game suffers from uh, some level of schizophrenia and psychopathy the um they it's one of the best games in the subject like they had multiple consulting neurologists on the game to make sure that like this is not just a game about someone who has a mental illness it's like the mental illness is simply part of her characterization and they wanted to create it faithfully it's really cool it's 
really neat game. I'm so glad Microsoft picked them up for and is going to be giving them real money to fund their sequel. I cannot wait to see what's what uh Senua's Saga looks like. Joy Manufacturing Co. Where did you guys where did that name where did that come from? Like where did the Joy Manufacturing Co. came from the idea actually that the the one of the core things behind Joy Manufacturing Co. is um I liked the idea of a like back in like 2012, you had tons of indie game companies coming out with name, you know, these really weird and outrageous names that were fun to remember. Like I'm, I'm just gonna make one up, like Unicorn Farts Incorporated or whatever. <laughs> yeah. you, you saw stuff like that. The problem with that is that like. Yeah, that's cool. It's fun. That's evocative. But like every single corporation, every single company goes through a crisis, like something where things get really bad and you need to come up with like hard solutions and stuff. And the idea, and it felt like it was going to be very sickening or distasteful to have to like sit down with the investors or with everyone whose future depends on our next decision and be like, all right, everyone, what are we going to do? What are we going to sacrifice to save Unicorn Farts Incorporated? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I would have to kick my own ass. So, like, I liked the idea of something that was fun, but, um, and, like, you know, got across the concept. What do we do? What is a game? We make programs that make people happy, but could also be abbreviated when you're talking about it in a serious context, which is JMC. Yeah. I like the idea of being like, all right, hey, so like let's go over JMC's uh tax returns. This is a, these are the things we should be thinking about right now. And so like we could be fun and we could be serious and uh I'm a big believer in that mentality of we take our work seriously, we don't take ourselves seriously. I I love that story because as as an advertiser and a marketer, like branding is so so vital uh to a product. I feel like uh I actually got into a, it heated debate once with uh, an old manager of mine where he said, well, you like up and comers, millennials, Gen Z's, you guys don't <laughs> care about the up and comers. Like 30 and 40 <laughs> yeah, I know, by now. I know, I know. <laughs> it's outrageous. I know. Um, he was like, you guys, uh, you, you guys can buy, you don't care about the brand. You guys can buy brandless stuff. You could buy like what doesn't matter anymore. And I was like, that's a lie. That is complete BS. I'm like, branding is the soul of a product and like a product, a widget is just a widget, right? At the end of the day, uh, the, my, the microphone that I use or the cell phone that I use, all of those are at the end of the day, just like a product, but I bought those particular products because of the branding and the marketing story that was told for me for those products. Like I use Samsung cell phones because I like the Galaxy and I've always liked the Galaxies. And I I have like a Sontronics Podbeam Pro for my microphone because I had a wonderful conversation with the owner and I liked the people that stood behind that product. And so like it's important to have so much thought put into your brand identity that you you thought about like let's not just do a silly name let's do a name that's fun but also when we are going to investors or we're going to publishers we can have a serious conversation without giggling over like the name every time we say it which is like 100 percent. i've got a lot of respect for you because of that i just think it's like 
the thought that went into it is 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 it's great, and I, I like I like the logo too. It's very like uh, industrial type of like. It was feeling. actually inspired by old school industrial logos, like logos for uh, the original logo for Ford and for U.S. Steel and things like that. I love that. Yeah, we wanted to create something that like also we use a black and white tonality so that we could do shifted color shifted versions of the logo to fit with any product that we make in the future because we don't know whether or not those colors are going to clash so by making right. something that's monochrome we can uh, adapt it to our situation very yeah. easily i'm i'm a i'm just a big branding nerd i love packaging and thank like... you my, my roommate <laughs> at the time who is the one who we had the uh who actually designed our logo and is the one who did the who i had the original drunk conversation at the game about dan he is uh, uh, he works with Shark Mob, but he's a UI designer by trade. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so he knows. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he, he's the kind of person who sat down for fun once and re- did mock-ups that were redos of the Mass Effect 1 UI. Oh, nice. Like someone who really cares about his craft. Yeah, well, that's awesome. <laughs> and so, so being able to have him to look over my stuff and nitpick it properly was always very helpful. And 100% UI is something that like UI and like branding is something that if somebody doesn't actively think about it you can it, you can screw up on it bad yeah. and it's yeah. stuff that like when done correctly no one notices it when done incorrectly Absolutely. everyone notices yeah, exactly. it exactly it's a lot of yeah it's just one of those things where if the yeah the, if all the trains are coming on the station nobody cares but um <laughs> one little mess might i say ambitions ui is great thank you i love the kind of the mix of both being a useful UI, a UI that is easy to read, easy to understand, but also still having that it's in theme, you know, it, it's, it feels <laughs> like, like it almost reminds me of the very fancy picture frames on a painting from yep. that era. With Yeah. The, uh, the Rococo era was this very big mindset of less is not more, more is more. And we figured we needed to capture that in everything. A game that really inspired me in this regard was Persona 5. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Persona 5's UI is like, you know, very visually different from ours, but it was like clear that the team had a very specific vision for the game and the UI, every element reflects this. Like the, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, for the folks who have Android phones, if someone actually made a downloadable version so that your texting UI can look like the UI from Persona 5 that they use in the tech in the texting screen and it's gorgeous and cool and honestly like I looked at it like this is actually like really good phone UI like did they get someone who used to work for a phone company to do this I just feel there's there's so many games where either either the UI is like a last minute thought or it's not something that they obviously put attention into and it just like throws you out of the game so much I mean one game I'm thinking of off the top of my head I'm a Sonic the Hedgehog fan all right yeah I grew up with this yeah so so one of the most recent sonic games with sonic forces and the ui it looks awful it's just like solid colors that just don't look good it's so much different from the the ui i'm used to seeing in a sonic game which always feels fun and lighthearted and stuff you know it's very flat looking it just 
drew me so much whenever i see pictures of people playing the game i'm like it looks like someone's playing a bad fan game it doesn't look like an official full budget title from sega it looks like someone like pulled this off a game jolt sort of deal but with 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 ambition i mean it gives me feeling of like playing warcraft 3 or starcraft 2 or stuff where the the ui almost blends into the story we were also inspired by like diablo yes like like, i remember the old school diablo ui where you Mm. had like the baroque gargoyles yeah, holding yeah. up your potion yeah. containers to represent your health and mana yeah. and i just like i have a, I have a huge sucker for stuff yeah, like it, that it feels part of it like, it's so it, it, yeah. and i love that i think i think ambition does a great job with that it definitely has that you can tell it's what it's used for but also it feels part of the game and it doesn't feel like it was a last minute thing it feels like a lot of care and attention was put toward it that's just me thank yeah. you <laughs> i think these kind of things like with when you're making games the there is there's sort of this holistic moment where like just if lots of little things can come together to create a feeling of uh you know the word gets thrown around in my opinion too much in games but like there a feeling feeling of immersion Mm, where like you start to Mm -hmm. forget the space between yourself and the game because there is this like totality i'm always a big fan of uh, also jet set radio future has this whole thing going on where it's like jet set radio future that is a game that relies so hard on its aesthetic and it's inspiring like jet set radio is like will i ever be as cool as this game the answer is no i will never be as cool as jet set radio future unless i figure out a way to actually grind up a skyscraper god damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... especially with such a small team i think it's understanding your boundaries as a person as well and when you need to defer to somebody who you said you like you know you have a friend that specializes in ui you also said that you were an artist you know you're not doing the game art yeah and... i the my my, our art director alexandria she is fantastic and there are moments where like you know alexandria shoots something over to me for me to critique it because i am you know the the, as the ceo the final yay or nay person and there are moments where i'm like man i don't even feel qualified to critique this this is so beyond my personal level like what am i even doing here but i think that's an important fact that i think that leads to a good product at the end sometimes i feel like especially when it comes to larger companies executives and leaders want to say something to say something mm-hmm. have you've heard have you ever heard the uh the goose story from battle chess no or the duck story mm. so uh, i don't know if you ever, ever remember the old game it was a, a ch- an animated chess game called battle chess and the art the and it was the duck sorry so the art the art lead artist realized that his boss had this obsession where he had to always say something he always had to correct something even for but like you know if you correct something that's already good you have to stand a good chance of making it worse right and so he was so fed up with the amount of um iterations he was having to do over the queen character that he put in this little duck next to her that was in a spot that would be very easy for him to remove. And so when he presented the character, the guy is like, yeah, yeah, no, this all looks really, really good. Just uh, get rid of that duck and we'll be fine. And he's like, cool. (laughs) Because he had put the duck in as this sacrificial lamb. So because he knew the guy is something that he could focus on. And like, that's really like, it's a cool, it's a fun story. But if someone's in a position where they feel like they need to manage you as a boss in that right. way, then like you need to look yourself in the mirror and ask like, what are you even doing, man? Right, right. Yeah. And I think it's, but it's important for a leader to 
understand that. So I understand that you guys have a publisher, uh, Iceberg Interactive. Uh, I went through their uh, catalog, as it were, and they have a pretty wide breadth of indie games that they've published. Now, how did that whole relationship start with Iceberg, and like, how did that evolve? So when the uh, when Ambition reached a stage where we felt like we needed a publisher, and like you were going to wonder why we went to a publisher at all, I'll quickly lay out like. I remember I listed all those different jobs that I have. One <laughs> job, right. the two jobs that I do, that none of us have the skill set for is we don't have a marketer and we don't have a PR person and we couldn't afford them. And the thing is, like, we don't and we didn't have money for a marketing campaign to be honest. And you can make the best game in the world, but like, if no one knows about it, yeah. you've just engaged financial failure. So. Like I and even if you dropped that money to me, like just like mysteriously showed up on my doorstep, uh, I wouldn't know how to spend it. I would waste it, and I don't want to. I don't want to have to learn this on the fly too. So we were reaching out to publishers, and like I've I, when I say reaching out to publishers, I mean like I've reached out to over a hundred publishers. But it, pitching a publisher on your game is a long process and pretty involved because it's not just like I want a thing. It's like you have to fit into their schedule. You have to be aligned with each other's needs. We talked. I talked with Iceberg on and off quite a bit actually. Like I've met some of their people at various GDCs, and like we eventually like got a really good vibe from them. One of the things you should always do as an indie game person is ask a publisher like hey can you put me in contact with someone you worked with in the past so i can chat it out with them and you know you have a a sidebar conversation that the publisher cannot listen into and you can have like honest assessment from that person like what went well what did not go well what would you trust them with what would you not trust them with and like the fruit of that conversation that i had was really good like it fit very much within our parameters publishers will turn you down for reasons that have nothing to do with your game being bad it'll be like wow i really love this game but like our slate for that part of the year is full we just do not have the resources or like we did not have a good year this year we do not have the money to take on your title and like stay in contact with those people it's a small industry like you might end up working together in the future and like most publishers are super nice like i had multiple people run up to us at pax and who are like oh hey it's great to see you in person I just wanted to tell you, like, no hard feelings. Like, <laughs> one of my favorite surprises is that, like, I don't know if you're familiar with, like, Devolver Digital. Yeah. Like, Devolver Digital's brand is, like, aggressive sociopathy. <laughs> and, like, but Devolver Digital as people are, like, could not be nicer oh, and more yeah. professional. <laughs> it's, like, a really funny head switch where you're like, oh, well, that was, like... Oh, that was very that was very timely and to the point of view. Thank you. <laughs> like, the CGB uh, group, we're a big fan of uh, the Devolver Digital people as well. Our composer John actually does a lot of the music for their live sh- for their live uh, trailer. Oh, thing. cool! You know the Devolver Digital show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the guy who did a lot of the classical music composition. That's John. Oh, oh well, that's, that's cool. He's, yeah, he's we... actually appears in like that in the end segment of their most recent one. Oh, oh, they, that's... Uh, yeah. John, that's he's fun. a really fun. Yeah, John's a really fun guy. So, so uh, we we are the classic gaming brothers. So we like to talk about classic games. Do you remember the first video game that you ever played? First video game I ever played was Civilization One. Oh, Ooh. good game. The, uh, it was, yeah, it was I was on uh, a it was on a Windows DOS machine. 
Um, no, actually, no, let me scroll that back. It wasn't Civ 1. It was The Lost Island of Dr. Brain. Oh! The Lost Island of Dr. Brain. Yeah, yeah. I heard of that. I remember uh, all like the kids in my neighborhood, we would come and we'd sit around and we would play the game collectively as a team because, like, you know, we're a bunch of, like... Uh, elementary schoolers so like it, they'd be like oh man we got to a music puzzle well hey your mom makes you take <laughs> piano lessons what do we do and like and we would like as a group brute force these solutions and stuff we did it all the time and god the lost island dr brain uh the that was probably my first game and then yeah. civ one civ one uh sonic the hedgehog number two of course and um the best one yeah and like that would that, yeah right and though i i do have a huge soft spot in my heart for sonic and knuckles like especially when you keep using so, using knuckles to play through sonic 2 is like such an interesting run so i guess those would be the classic games uh other games that like really influenced me growing up would be like fallout 2 uh was huge for me the fact that you could play this really dark and violent rpg that you could still under the right circumstances talk your way out of nearly everything like you can play a nearly pacifist run of fallout 2 and that was like blowing my mind as a kid that like you this you could even make your way to the final boss and be like it does not need to end like this. I, you know, I have learned X, Y, and Z about your plan, and I know it's not actually going to work, and here's why. And, like, that was really inspiring. It's one of the things that made me fall in love with the idea of games where war is the loose state, where, like, conflict has gotten too bad, and, like, now everyone's going to lose something. I I think that's a, I think there should be more games like that, because I think it's a cool lesson to teach. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So for my final, final question, (laughs) if you could go back and do it all over again, the same path that you took today to get to where you are, would you do that or would you do anything different? Ooh, and I get to retain my knowledge from this moment? Yes. Or... Okay, I get to retain my knowledge from this moment. I mean, I would have to pick the I'd have to pick the go back and change things option. I don't know what I'd do, but like I have to pick it because as far as I know, no one's ever gotten to do that. <laughs> and do, and by its nature, doesn't that mean you have to do it? It's true. But would you would you pick different choices through your life or would you would you can kind of get to where you are the same way? Yeah, I mean, cuz it also asks the really interesting question of like uh like time travel is the ultimate coward's weapon. You never have to commit to any decision you make and you know what if you get stuck in a loop where you just keep going back because you want to make it perfect you want to make it perfect and you damn yourself like the ooh, now i'm gonna be thinking about this one for a <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that answers your question enough. oh it does i think so <laughs> well once again so we had uh, luther come onto our show from joy manufacturing co they are working on a game called ambition a minuet in power and we will you can wishlist it on steam and any other places you can check us out on steam you can check us out on itch.io you can uh, follow joy menu co on uh, twitter we've got a discord server that you can find your way to via the steam page we are on the humble game store as well and i am trying to find as many storefronts to put us on as possible because i think people should be able to buy games wherever it is they want to buy games thank you very much for uh, coming out of the show and having Please, a, thanks for a, having me. a great conversation with us. We 100% recommend checking out Ambition Minuet of Power. In fact, I will give uh, Luther this promise that I 
will not request a free copy of the CD key secretly, but I will buy your game when it comes out. Oh, that really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Uh, Luther, uh, we, we really appreciate you coming on the show. So uh, we will we will 100% buy your game. So we, we will put down um, Ambition and Minuet and Power for at least a two for buy. So you, you guys will at least recoup two people's <laughs> That will only need a few thousand more and we'll be good. Perfect. Hey, you got to start somewhere. Exactly. So if everyone listening, tell a couple thousand of your friends <laughs> to, to purchase Ambition Minuet and Power. It'll be will be will be good and Luther will be happy and we'll be happy um thank you everyone for checking out uh classic gaming brothers indie dev lounge uh zach is there anything else that i'm forgetting don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother zach Uh, Zach. (laughs) (laughs) we've been the classic gaming brothers (laughs) that's right all right (laughs) oh my gosh this is where we generally talk about the cool stuff after zach's